0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman joins Washington Post Live to discuss his new memoir, Here,
1: Right Matters, An American Story. The book explores his time in the Trump administration and his role as a key witness in the impeachment trial. Let's listen. Welcome. I'm Karen Tumulty, and I want to thank you for joining us today at Washington Post Live for our conversation with retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a decorated Army veteran who was Director of European Affairs at the National Security Council in the Donald Trump White House and ultimately became a key witness to the circumstances that led to President Trump's first impeachment. Thank you so much for joining us today, Colonel Vindman.
0: Thank you, Karen, I'm uh, looking forward to this conversation.
1: Well, I would love to begin our conversation by talking about the circumstances of July 25th, 2019. When you were a witness to a phone call between President Trump and the newly elected president of Ukraine, a phone call you were very eager to see happen because you thought it was a matter of national security, but then it takes a turn. You had dealt with President Trump. Can you describe the turn the conversation took and whether you were surprised by it?
0: Sure. So I, I was eager for this conversation to occur, as you pointed out, but I was also apprehensive. Over the preceding months, uh, you might recall there were all sorts of st- stories starting to circulate uh, that involved Ukraine and uh, President and elements of the president's inner circle, including uh, Rudolph Giuliani, rabble rousing and uh, demanding that Ukrainians conduct an investigation into uh, Hunter Biden and <clears throat> and some way tarnish. Um, then Vice Pre- former Vice President uh, Biden. And all these things had been unfolding with some sic- significant consequences, including the, the removal of Ambassador uh, Maria Ivanovich, Masha Ivanovich from the post of ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, part of our inauguration, the presidential uh, delegation to their inauguration uh, was derailed when the president directed Vice President Pence to withdraw based on the fact that the Ukrainians weren't responding uh, s- swiftly or seriously enough to these demands, and then there was the hold on security assistance uh, that I had to manage and uh, frankly, it was in the shadows initially, and I brought it into the into the interagency apparatus by putting it into what we call the nSC pro- the um, interagency process and all these things uh, led up to two critical engagements, one July tenth, which was where um, Gordon Sondland. Suggested this quid pro quo and investigation in exchange for a meeting, and then July twenty fifth, uh, where the president's own hand became apparent, and the president, uh, it was apparent then that the president was the driving force for this investigation.
1: And and basically, when you hear the president of the United States say to the new president of Ukraine, you know, you will get this badly needed aid if you will launch an investigation into now President Joe Biden and his son that could actually help secure Trump's re-election, you are trying to figure out what to do with this information. And the obvious thing to do is to go to the ethics officer, um, which as fate would have it, and your, your book, here, right? Matters, is very much of a family story. But as fate would have it, the ethics officer that you are to go to is your identical twin brother. Um, you've had parallel military careers, but it is only in the National Security Council that the two of you find yourself in the same spot. Can you describe this conversation with your twin brother and how this then shaped your thinking? Going forward,
0: So I, I would suggest that maybe the, di- the, um, the notion of taking this to the proper authorities was not a difficult uh, decision and it was not something I, I really had to think through uh, in, in great detail. Uh, based on the, the events of July 10th and where again this enterprise uh, was brought into official channels, uh, Gordon Sondland proposed a quid pro quo. Uh, where there would be an investigation in exchange for a meeting, that was with Ambassador Bolton. Uh, I, I reported it immediately to John Eisenberg. So this was the second time that I was reporting a similar enterprise, except now it was the the President of the United States. And when I walked into my brother's office after this, uh, I told Eugene. I closed the door. I told Eugene, if what I'm about to tell you ever becomes public, the President will be impeached. And that was that was. I guess that was um, a a keen recognition of um, uh, of the import of that moment, the gravity of the situation. uh, A maybe in a certain ways a prescient statement in that events unfolded the way they did. But I didn't really, in any way, have any uh, understanding that this was going to become public. I thought this was going to stay in the classified channels and the government channels. And in going and having Eugene in tow with me when I reported to John Eisenberg. Uh, the same person I, I spoke to, the senior NSC official, my hope was that, or my understanding, my expectation was that these folks were going to do their job. John Eisenberg was going to counsel the president on his wrongdoing, and the president would reverse course, as, as has happened under my own experience so many times when the president issued an ill-advised tweet or kind of made a statement and then was corrected and would have to backpedal so that was the expectation uh, in going to that was the expectation in going to uh, the white House officials the other white House officials in the, in the legal shop and taking my concerns to them
1: and the the other person who is such a big figure in this book is your father uh, you when you do find yourself suddenly a public figure suddenly a target of all the rage of President Trump and his supporters you addressed your opening statement with that memorable phrase here right matters which is the title of your book you addressed that to your father and his immigrant story yet interestingly enough your father a conservative a trump supporter had actually urged you not to testify could you describe that that exchange?
0: Sure. So, um, I, thank you for asking this question, because I, I recognize now that I didn't give Eugene as much credit as he deserves. He, uh, in this statement, um, in this part of my uh, state opening statement, it was Eugene's idea to actually uh, um, make a reference to my dad, who was extremely anxious about what was going on. Uh, Eugene and I you know, had been working at the National Security Council for months, uh, for actually almost a year at that point, or a little over a year. I joined um, July 16th. And uh, we commuted together. Eugene's a neighbor, lives four doors down from me, so he's he was instrumental, you know, all along the way. Uh, in this case, uh, he was was very um, he w- he was able to kind of fill a hole and uh, allow me to address my dad directly about his concerns. My dad was channeling his forty seven years of uh, life in the Soviet Union and uh, deeply concerned about the consequences of going up against the president of the United States. Uh, he actually wanted me to march in the, uh, into the Oval Office and, and you know tell the president, what can we do to fix this? That's, that was his vision about how to extract myself from danger. It was much more about the personal risks to me, the risks to the family, than any affinity for the president. Although, as you pointed out, my dad was conservative, Uh, my dad uh, was a trump supporter at the time you know he he parted ways with trump a long time ago but i think he's in a a lot of ways not all that different from a lot of soviet uh adult soviet uh, refugees or refugees from other communist regimes that that reject anything that um can be even uh, remotely associated with the left by swinging hard to the right and um I think that was his main affinity for, for Donald Trump. That The fact that Trump was not a politician appealed to my dad. But uh, all that paled in, in comparison, and it was easily dismissed when the president challenged me or came after me directly. And, uh, and I always knew I had my dad uh, behind me.
1: And ultimately, of course, your decision to come forward be- spells the end of your military career, which is certainly something you... Understood was a possibility as you do it. The the other phrase, though, that comes up over and over again in the book is sort of the multi generational Vindman family motto: start over and keep starting over. So once you understand, there really isn't a future for you after decades in the army. There is not a future for you there. You decide that your next call to service is to speak out against Donald Trump and the threat that he poses to the U.S. Constitution. Colonel Vindman, Donald Trump is no longer president. Is he still a threat to the U.S. Constitution and our democratic system?
0: He's an enormous threat. I I was a reluctant actor in the political stage. Um, I was drawn in. kicking and screaming, I guess. Um, I uh, still adhere to my principles of being apolitical. I mean, that might change eventually, frankly, but uh, I'm trying to not be drawn into kind of a a purely partisan um, engagements. But at the same time, I can make cold, hard calculations about the the threat the the former president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, poses. He continues to pose a, a keen threat, based on uh, propagating th- this lie that the election was stolen in fact he was the one that was trying to steal the election from uh president biden who was, who was uh elected lawfully elected he attempted to launch an insurrection he attempted to uh drive a wedge between continues to drive a wedge between uh the american public uh, on the left and right and demonizes the uh democratic party or anybody that's actually not a supporter of his. I don't think I mean it's not just the, the democrats frankly that he attacks. He attacks Republicans that are don't support him. It's he's a, he's a he's a vile man that has done more damage to the United States than any other leader in, in a recent US history.
1: So Colonel Vindman, are you telling us you're thinking of running for office?
0: I'm not saying that, but I don't also want to be disingenuous. I um I would say that I, I would be, I'm, re, I'm very reluctant right now. Don't get, people have actually approached me and suggested that I run for office and I've put them off. I mean, there was a point in time in which I was uh, asked to speak at the democratic convention and I, I put all the, that kind of clearly partisan activity off. But I have engaged with um, with representatives and political actors that have maybe offered a different pers- perspective on how to continue service. Basically, uh, the, the people I've engaged with are, are, are altruistic, recognizing that they're, they're compromising themselves, they're, um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, harming their uh, personal relationships uh, with their families because they have to be away from families. And I honor that. And I guess I don't want to cast it in the way I may have done in the past, which is that it's, it's dishonorable service. I think it's honorable service. Uh, I'm, it's not something I'm ready for, uh, and uh, you know my wife uh, will will uh, would not support that. But uh, I just want to make sure that I'm also not being disingenuous. Um, to, you know, if, if my perspectives change, what I do can say is that I'm pretty darn committed to acting against those leaders in government that have acted against their faith, that have failed to to live up to their oath. And that have done harm to this country. So that is something that I'm I'm committed to. Uh, I, I'm working with vote vets uh, on on their uh, campaigns with uh, folks that I'm close to just intuitively because they're also a former service members that are running and campaigning against you know bad actors in, in government. So that's something that I'm I'm ready for uh, and w- ready to weigh in on that regard. But uh, that's that's as far as I, I'm able to go at the moment.
1: Well, as you speak about internal threats, can can I ask you about a concept that you raise in the book of, of external threats? And that is you write about how when you were in Ukraine, you had an opportunity to see and really begin to understand how the Russians engage in what you describe as hybrid warfare. Can you Explain what you mean by that. And do you still see Moscow doing that today? Uh, And especially, again, as we are talking about threats to our own democratic system.
0: Well, thank you that we get to move into my kind of my my bailiwick and in my comfort zone. I could talk about this for for hours. I know, you know, we don't have that much time. But um, I my career, uh, the latter portions of my career were entirely focused on understanding Eurasia, and understanding the threat that Russia poses. Russia, in, in my view, Russia is a bigger threat than China. And in my view, uh, and the reason I could say this is that there are two components in my formulation, capabilities and intent. Both Russia and China have potent capabilities, military capabilities, uh, political, diplomatic, informational capabilities. But Russia has demonstrated a will and intent to aggressively attack the United States. The Chinese... The Chinese are looking to improve their own lot. They're looking to advance their national security interests, and they're using tools that are harmful to the United States, coercive economic tools. They're starting to play in the information space, but they have not attacked us the way the Russians have. And my experience, firsthand experience, serving in the region, living three years in Russia, I saw the Russians uh, supply Russian forces in eastern Ukraine, wage war in Ukraine, and... uh, in order to reclaim territory in, in Ukraine and expand Russian Empire and that uh, Ukraine is a testbed for military economic cyber every kind of tool that we'll experience uh, against ourselves at some point in time more than likely and if we are successful in, in hardening Ukraine we're much more effective on resisting Russian aggression and that's why uh, Ukraine is such a central portion of our, our um, should be such a su- focal point for our support to the region.
1: So your appearance today has brought a lot of interest from our audience. And I would like to ask you a few of the questions that some of our viewers have submitted. Um, One is from Martha Forston in Maryland. And what she wants to know is, how did the Trump administration tell you that you were off their team?
0: Well, they told me uh, I was off the team even before I, I actually emerged in the in the public eye. After I had made my concerns uh, heard by the uh, authorities in the White House, I was um, no longer seen as a reliable political actor, uh, willing to compromise uh, ethics and values and um, potentially be- bend the law in order to support the president. And I was immediately kind of, um, ostracized and uh, removed from a number of trips. they excluded from meetings. Uh, and that, that happened as early as August. And that continued on, you know, ultimately the, pres- the White House and the president attacked me personally. The White House sent out attack talking points to their proxies in uh, the Republican party, as well as to the media. The same lines were parroted. Uh, the same lines that the White House sent out about one of their own staffers were parroted repeatedly, character assassination. So I knew I was off the team, you know, pretty much, Right away, but I was still willing to stay there to do my job and and to to do work for the next remaining months and uh, frankly to maybe even hang on to a military career. Ultimately, I, I was removed from the White House and uh, and that filtered down to the Army and the Department Defense Defense no longer wanting me there because of I was seen as a political liability.
1: Well, and we also have a question from Virginia Carpio in California with regard to sort of more recent investigations into actions by President Trump and top members of his administration. So she wants to know, have you been approached by the DOJ, FBI, Congress, or any other government entity, including the State Attorney of Georgia or the Southern District of New York, for information or to be a witness in any of their investigations?
0: So I think at one point I was asked to uh, to, to to offer uh, some insights into um, cases out of New York, but that was um, many, many months ago. And frankly, uh, I have not been, I mean, I have, haven't been uh, engaged by the administration at all, so uh, the answer is I think, with with that one outlier, the answer is no.
1: And Ted Weinberg of New York takes wants to know your perspective, looking back on all of this. Um, ultimately, President Trump is impeached not once but twice, and he nonetheless stays in office. So, Ted Weinberg wants to know, looking back at what happened, do you feel justice was served?
0: yeah that's a kind of a layered notion. Uh, I'd say in my case, um, maybe not. I left I was forced to leave my career uh, because of a campaign of intimidation and, and bullying. Uh, but I've landed on my feet um, based on that theme of kind of starting over, and I wasn't scared to get uh, to leave the the military there was apprehension because it was in the middle of covid but i was confident that i was going to land on my feet um but there was another level in which the president was held accountable it just wasn't by elected officials it was by the american public and uh, that was in some small way i feel like i contributed to that by exposing presidential corruption um by far it was his mismanagement on covid and i and Republican leadership in the Congress, in the Senate, must be held accountable by, for the fact that they did not do, they live up to their oaths. And as a result, the president continued to serve, was emboldened, and was in a position to mismanage COVID and the casualties that, that uh, created and the economic damage. So that's a reason to vote those guys out uh, on, uh, alone. But I think uh, there is a, uh, the justice came from the hands of the American public directly. So. Yeah. So
1: as could you describe in a little more detail that, that, again, you your new call to service is is speaking out that, you know, beyond writing this book, can you describe a little more, you know, precisely how you are doing this and through, you know, through what platforms you're you're finding sure. your voice?
0: So uh, I've been very, very fortunate, frankly, starting out with um, your, your publication, in Washington Post, I was at, uh, kind of able to set a roadmap and a declaration for myself uh, about this time last year in which I committed to advancing national security, supporting public servants and uh, public service, and then accountability, uh, that, the need for values-based leadership. I've, been succe- I, I've, I've tried to be active on all those fronts. I've Uh, I'm done with the coursework for my dissertation and I've written a number of articles and and a bunch of publications on national security. I've advocated for public servants. I think there is much more to do on the accountability front and values-based leadership. I spoke out about President Trump um, in September of last year going into elections so I could help dispel notions of good governance and and, uh, expose corruption. I've written uh, articles to that extent. I joined the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative in which we, it's a nonpartisan or a bipartisan, we'll we'll just go with a nonpartisan group of folks that um, from from both the Republican and Democratic Party that seek solutions that could uh, reduce the polarization in this this country, harden it against the next attacks, both external and internal. And uh, as much as possible, I'm trying to be active on the accountability front as a matter of fact, I'm working on something right now um, to encourage the, the um, current administration to not have some wishful thinking about accountability and apply additional resources to accountability because in, unless we kind of deal with the open wound uh, of uh, from the previous administration, from the continued propagation of the big lie, we can't really move forward.
1: So specifically, what what would you like to see Done in terms of accountability. Do people need to go to jail? Does President Trump himself need to be prosecuted?
0: Well, I think there shouldn't be uh, uh, what I uh, self-deterrence is, is another term I use in the book. We shouldn't be self-deterred. The administration shouldn't be self-deterred based on some ha- ha- um, high-minded notion that you know it could smack of retribution. We should just basically follow the The law follow investigations where, wherever they lead, and not overthink about uh, overthink this idea of well, this could be seen as you know retaliation. That's not that's not the right answer. The right answer is to investigate matters as uh, as they arise. Um, the Republican Party is going to probably attack the, the the current administration regardless of what they do and call them uh, partisan actors or whatever the case might be, and then really. At one point, I, I advocated for this idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It would have been a bipartisan commission to investigate um, wrongdoing. That looks like it's not going to happen. Obviously, the, the January 6th commission is not bipartisan. So the Democratic Party and the majority party in power might need to go it alone, as co- uncomfortable as that might be. They just might need to go it alone and continue to do what they think uh, is right. They're the party that was elected into power. Uh, and they need to exercise the power that power uh, based on the will of the people and move things uh, along. And implication is there might be some implications to retaining um, the filibuster, whether it's time to dispense with it. I think that's something that needs to be examined very carefully.
1: Well, Colonel Vintman, you bring up January 6th, and that is precisely what I wanted to ask you about in the minutes that we have remaining where were you on january 6th and how did you see these events unfolding and and sort of what perspective did you see them in in terms of all of your own experience with the trump white
0: house my my initial, I was at the gym. My wife called me, and she told me, um, "Do you know what's going on?" And she filled me in. And my immediate reaction was, "How do we fight back?" Is it uh, maybe my immediate reaction, which is no, uh, not always the best reaction, is, "Okay, is it time for a counter protest? What do we do to defend this country? What do we do to defend uh, um, the capital building?" Uh, quickly, I you know I saw the the reason to not do that because it would it would uh, create much. Um, Unrest in the streets and help the President, frankly, with maybe an invocation of the insurrection act. But I started a different kind of campaign with the Renew Democracy Initiative, which was uh, a, a movement to identify what democracy means to uh, true patriots. And um, that's moving on to to other kinds of activities in the space to cast an affirmative notion uh, of the United States still as the as the shining city uh, on a hill. Uh, I still believe that this is the the greatest country in the world, and although we've had uh, we've had a difficult period, we've had many difficult periods, and we continue to march forward uh, towards a platitude of a more perfect union. I, I still believe in these uh, notions, and I, I'm trying to continue to be active to advance um, to move us forward.
1: And and yet, seven months after Donald Trump is out of office, why do you think? So many people continue to believe the lie that somehow the 2020 election was stolen from him. What is it that that makes, again, these these corrosive forces uh, take hold the way they do?
0: In part, it's the same thing that I may have suffered from Briefly, until that July 25th call, phone call, the reverence for the office of the president. Uh, until that moment, I I tried to rationalize the way that it was other corrupt individuals that were acting on the president's behalf. Until the president himself kind of declared his his uh, his his position. I think there's still a high reverence for you know a former president, uh, even a, a deeply corrupt president that um, will lie as as a matter of course and um even though he's been silenced or he's 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 been taken off uh, twitter where he can he's lost part of his megaphone he still has access and, and a way to propagate those lies and that's being magnified by republican um actors that see some benefit in catering to the president even though they themselves believe that the president uh, is lying so the ultimate it's unclear what the ultimate solution is uh, but Part of this is to, to run good candidates against these individuals. They lose. Uh, the president gets persecuted, uh, prosecuted, <laughs> prosecuted for his corruption, uh, and um, that's a slow uh, healing process.
1: Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. But again, Colonel Vindman, congratulations on the new memoir, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And I'm Karen Tumulty. And as always, thank you so much for watching and joining us. Uh, If you want to check what interviews we have coming up, please head over to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and to find more information about our upcoming schedule.